Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Before we start today's episode, I'd like to share a bit of exciting news with you. At least I think it's exciting. As you may remember from last year, I wrote and recorded an audio tour for Stockholm together with VoiceMap, an app that provides you with audio-guided tours of hundreds of cities all around the world that you can do on your own using the VoiceMap app on your phone. Well, this spring I've been working on an additional tour. This time it's a guided audio tour of my old university town, Lund. The medieval metropolis, where the archbishops of Denmark used to be located until Sweden conquered Scania in the 17th century. You can now download my tour of Lund using VoiceMap, for when you'll go visit this gem of a town next. And you don't even have to go to Lund to enjoy the tour. If, for some inexplicable reason, you're not planning a visit to Lund anytime soon, you can always download the tour and listen to it in the park, on the bus, or during some long work meeting that should have been an email. If you prefer to visit Stockholm this summer, you can of course still download my tour of the Swedish capital as well, using the VoiceMap app. But that's enough self-promotion for now. Let's get back to the show. After all, that's why you've tuned in. Last time, we saw how King John of Denmark grew increasingly impatient with the Swedes. They had eventually accepted him as king, true, but they changed their minds as soon as John had shown weakness. The steward, Sten Sture, got a renewed rebellion going, and he led it until he died. His successor, Svante Nilsson, continued his policy of resisting the Danes, even though his heart wasn't really in it. King John finally lost his patience with the rebellious Swedes. He condemned the Swedish steward to death in absentia, and later sent his son and heir, Christian, to raid and pillage in southwestern Sweden. This strengthened the peace camp in Sweden, and calls were heard to get rid of the steward. The steward was accused of neglecting the defense of the realm, and Svante Nilsson was only saved from the humiliation of being ousted by dying before he could be fired. This time, we'll follow the early career of the new king of Denmark. Because when King John dies, his son Christian will succeed him on the throne as the sixth king of the Kalmar Union. Christian had been brought up to be a ruler from a very early age, and combined with his hot temper, that sense of entitlement made him effective and ruthless, as well as pig-headed and vindictive. As those who dare to oppose him would soon find out. Episode 68, The Sixth King. King John died in 1513. Before he passed away, he had done his best to secure the succession by having his son Christian recognized as the heir in all three kingdoms. But the Swedes obviously no longer cared about that recognition. The Danish Council of the Realm also demanded that the new king agreed to limit his own powers even further than his father had done in order to recognize his claim to the throne. Christian did so, but just like his father, he found ways to round the council and rule through informal advisors instead of the established channels preferred and controlled by the high nobility. Christian was 30 years old when he became king, so no inexperienced child. He'd been educated to one day take over the government since he was a young boy. And he also had both practical governing experience and real military experience after having commanded troops in the years of war against the Swedes. 
The sources agree that he was a bright and skillful politician, but he was also stubborn, impatient, vengeful, and quick to anger. I wish I could say that this is not only foreshadowing, but also an example of some excellent observational skills on the part of these medieval Scandinavian chroniclers. But it's just as likely, if not more so, that these characteristics were added to Christian, now known as Christian II to the likes of you and me, after the fact. Anyway, from 1507 to 1513, Christian had served as a sort of viceroy in Norway, and there he ruthlessly guarded the power and the privileges of the crown against the nobility, the Hanseatic League, and the church. Bishops who made the mistake of insisting on ecclesiastical autonomy were chased away or imprisoned and replaced by yesmen. In 1510, Christian's chancellor was even appointed archbishop in Trondheim. Dutch and local Norwegian merchants were favoured at the expense of the German representatives of the Hanseatic League, and peasant rebellions were mercilessly crushed, drenched in blood. King John must have been pleased with Christian's achievements. The king had sent his son and heir to Norway partly for him to learn the practical aspects of governing, but partly also to strengthen the power of the crown in Norway, to create a basis of power for the king that could challenge the Swedish and Danish nobility. During his time in Norway, Christian had taken up residency at Akershus, the strong castle in Oslo. That was closer to Copenhagen, but it also meant that a rival political centre was created in Norway, away from the rich port city of Bergen, dominated by the Hanseatic League, and Trondheim, where the archbishop resided. The Norwegian archbishop was rich and powerful, since the church was the biggest landowner in the country. That made the archbishop an extremely important person in Norwegian politics. Almost as soon as Christian had arrived in Norway back in 1507, he received reports about unrest in Bergen. The city was the largest in Norway at the time, with some 10,000 inhabitants, and Oslo only had about 6,000. As you may remember from episode 55, the Hansa, the Hanseatic League was strong in Bergen, and approximately one-third of the city's inhabitants were foreigners. Norwegian and Dutch merchants, who also used Bergen as their base, were angry about Hanseatic privileges in Bergen, which they felt were unfair. Relations between the German merchants and their non-Hanseatic counterparts were never really cordial, but from time to time the tensions bubbled over into open violence. This was one of those times. Christian was told that there was rioting, and so he decided to investigate personally. By the time he made it to Bergen in person, the crisis had passed, and things had calmed down. But Christian now had his eyes on Bergen. And as he arrived in the city in the fall of 1507, his eyes caught a glimpse of something, or rather someone, who more than piqued his interest. During this visit to Bergen, Christian got acquainted with a merchant woman called Sigrid Willems, and more importantly, her young and apparently extraordinarily beautiful daughter, Diveke. They were from the Netherlands, but had moved to Bergen in the hopes of a better life there. Sigrid was well-versed in politics and economics, and she was as charming as her daughter. Sigrid and Diveke would become important in Christian's life. Duvike became Christian's mistress, and her mother became an informal advisor, especially on issues of trade and finance. Thanks to Siegbrit, Christian would realize the importance of strengthening the burghers in the cities, who dealt with trade, manufacturing and commerce, in order to improve the economy, at the expense of the nobility. In Bergen, 
Christian spent a lot of time studying and developing trade policies, and he benefited greatly from Siegfried's knowledge and advice. When Christian returned to Oslo later that year, he made arrangements for Siegfried and Duvike to come along as well. He had a house built for them close to Akershus, so that they'd be able to be close to him. It soon became clear that Duvike wasn't just any mistress. Christian was close to Duvike on many levels, and didn't bother to do much to hide it either. This didn't sit well with the nobleman who surrounded the young prince, and whose advice he was supposed to take, and who saw their own privileges and incomes threatened by the influence of this commoner Siegbrit. Christian had hardly unpacked after his return from Bergen when he was alerted to the fact that his father, King John, was planning yet another invasion of Sweden. Now he was asked to cross the border into western Sweden with a force of his own in early 1508. That way, he would be able to help his father by dividing the Swedish forces. Christian was on the way, but then he received reports of a peasant revolt north of Oslo, and he had to redirect his forces. Even though he couldn't assist with the invasion of Sweden, Christian made sure the Norwegian rebellion was crushed with enormous brutality. Several of the peasants who survived were brought to Oslo, where they were executed and their heads were left on pikes outside the castle walls to show what happened to those who dared to challenge Christian. Christian suspected that the uprising hadn't been spontaneous, but rather led by someone, perhaps even someone in cahoots with the Swedes, who had wanted to divert Christian's forces from Sweden, if not to expel him from Norway altogether. So he had some imprisoned peasants tortured until they divulged that he was in fact the Bishop of Hamar who had incited the rebellion. Hamar is located some 100 kilometers north of Oslo, at the center of the region that had risen against Christian. So geographically, the accusations against the bishop made sense. Christian sent a letter to the bishop, inviting him to Oslo for a little chat. But the bishop was suspicious and didn't want to go. It took some convincing and promises of safe conduct before the cleric finally agreed. But on the way south, the bishop changed his mind. Instead of going to Oslo, he turned east and made it for the Swedish border as fast as he could. He didn't get far though, because Christian had anticipated that he may be doing something like that. So he'd sent soldiers to meet the bishop, and they set out to arrest him now. No more pretense of a friendly chat under safe conduct. The soldiers caught up with the bishop as he was fleeing through the forest and brought him to Akershus as a prisoner. At the same time, Christian himself went to Hamar to take the bishop's castle. He didn't have the time and resources to besiege it, so he needed to use cunning. As he and his entourage approached the castle, they started to gallop as fast as they could, and when they were within shouting distance of the walls, Christian called out to the guards to open the gate and let them in. He claimed that the bishop was in the entourage and that they were all chased by troops belonging to the steward of Sweden. The guards believed him, and only when Christian and his men were already inside the castle did the garrison realize the bishop wasn't with them. But then it was too late, and Christian could take over control of the castle. In the meantime, the bishop himself was taken from Akershus to Bohus Castle, further south and away from Oslo. Christian hoped that this would be a safer place to keep the rebellious cleric. Just like in some movie, the bishop was locked up in a chamber on the top floor of a high tower. And to continue the movie theme, the bishop decided to escape by ripping up his bed linen and clothes, making a rope that he hung from the window. 
Then one night he climbed down his homemade rope, hoping to escape his incarceration. But unfortunately for the prisoner, here the film went from an action movie to a comedy, or at least a farce, and the impromptu rope snapped. The escaping bishop fell to the ground, breaking one of his legs in the fall. Still, he didn't give up, and instead crawled away, probably in a lot of pain. He sought shelter in a hollow tree trunk, hoping to escape detection. The following day, when the escape was discovered, a search party set out in pursuit of the fugitive. The people who were sent out to look for the bishop used a pack of dogs, and they soon found the bishop hiding in the tree trunk. The bishop had no choice but to crawl out, and he was soon thrown back into jail. The Norwegian archbishop and other prelates protested against this treatment of their colleague. They insisted that the crown had no right to incarcerate a man of the cloth, and that the bishop should be handed over to be tried in an ecclesiastical court, as was his right, since at this time the secular courts had no jurisdiction over members of the church, who lived in a parallel legal universe. But Christian didn't care. He wasn't going to let something as unimportant as the law get in the way of his revenge. The Bishop of Hamar never did regain his freedom, and he died in prison four years later. And the incarceration of the rebellious Bishop of Hamar wasn't Christian's only violation of the rights and privileges of the church in Norway. In the spring of 1510, the Archbishop in Trondheim died. He'd ruled the church in Norway for 35 years, since Grandpa Christian's time, and he was arguably the most powerful man in Norway, with the possible exception of Christian himself. The archbishop had owned vast tracts of land, and he had even had the right to mint his own coins, a privilege usually reserved for kings. Now, when he was dead, Christian saw his chance to take control over the Norwegian church, and decided to appoint a loyalist as the new archbishop, and appointed his chancellor. The church in Norway had one of their own in mind for the post, but Christian and King John sent their candidate, the Chancellor, to Rome with a lot of money to bribe Pope Julius II to make the Holy Father see things their way. It succeeded, and Christian's trusted Chancellor was confirmed as Archbishop of Norway by the Pope. Christian's time as Viceroy in Norway came to an end in late 1512. At that time, he returned to Copenhagen in preparation for a trip throughout the kingdom with his dad, King John, where they'd visit various things and sit in judgment in various court cases that demanded royal intervention. The first destination for the father and son duo was the city of Ribe, where a new bishop was to be installed. It was winter and the weather was atrocious, with rain and floods, but they did make it to Ribe. Unfortunately, the weather conditions forced them to stay put there for much longer than they had planned and would have wanted. They were impatient to leave, and after a while King John decided that he'd waited long enough. Surely they'd be fine. A little rain and flooding had never killed anyone. So the royal party set out again, even though the conditions were still far from ideal. A local man guided them through the flooded Jutland northward. Crossing a swollen river in late January or early February 1513, the king's horse stumbled, and King John fell into the freezing cold water. Even though the king was brought to a nearby house to change into dry clothes, the tumble into the cold water had affected his health. By the time the royal entourage reached Aalborg Castle, King John was so weak he could hardly sit up on his horse. In Aalborg, the king was supposed to sit in judgment over a case on February 16th, but he was too ill to do so. 
but as luck would have it, Christian was there and healthy enough to take over his father's duties until his health improved. But the king's health never did improve. On the contrary, four days later, on February 20th, King John died. Even though John had done all he could to make sure Christian would have a smooth transition to power, the Danish Council of the Realm wasn't in the mood to facilitate the process. Now the council members made all kinds of demands to accept Christian as king. They wanted to guarantee their own influence, and since they had seen what Christian had been up to in Norway, they realized he needed to be limited as much as possible if they wanted to have a chance of preserving their position and power. The council members were also worried and annoyed that Christian turned to burghers instead of noblemen when he needed advisors and administrators. This upset the nobles who were used to having a monopoly on high offices of state. They were not amused by this trend of preferring talent over birth. Sigbrit Willems was a prime example of what worried and annoyed the Danish nobility. Not only was she a commoner, but she was also giving advice that went against the political and economic interests of the aristocracy. And if member of the Danish nobility had hoped that Christian's move from Oslo to Copenhagen would diminish Sigrid's influence over him, they were sorely mistaken. Soon after Christian had buried his father and moved into the castle in Copenhagen, he sent for his mistress and her mother. Sigrid and Duvike were brought to Copenhagen in the spring and were given a house close to the castle. But at least they didn't live in the castle itself, as John's mistress had done, especially when Queen Christina had been left for years in Swedish captivity. But the fact that the new king didn't share a roof with his mistress didn't mean that their relationship was secret. Everyone knew. And since the king seemed genuinely in love with Duvike, and her mother had the king's ear, this relationship was more irksome than John's had been to many in the Danish elites. At midsummer in 1513, the noblemen from Denmark, Norway and Sweden met in Copenhagen. King Christian had called the meeting because he wanted to be recognized as king by the three councils of the realm and take control over the most important castles in the Kalmar Union. His situation was already strong in Norway after his years there, but his influence was much weaker in Denmark. In Sweden, he had basically no power at all, and the Swedish delegation made it very clear that they hadn't come to recognize Christian as king of Sweden. Instead, a new meeting was called for in the summer of 1515. In the meantime, there would be a truce between Denmark and Sweden, lasting until Easter 1516. But the negotiations were tough and sometimes hostile with the Norwegians and Danes as well. On the advice of Christian's closest advisers, who knew him well, the negotiations weren't conducted face-to-face, even though everyone involved was present in Copenhagen. Instead, the different delegations would commit their arguments and counter-arguments to paper, and these letters were then sent back and forth between council members and the king. The point of this somewhat cumbersome system of communication was to avoid Christian getting angry, flipping out and ruining the talks. It was a smart move, because many of the demands and arguments made by the noblemen enraged Christian. For instance, the Danish council demanded that they, and not the king, control the royal treasury, and that it be kept at Kalundborg Castle, away from the king. In July 1513, the negotiations were done. The Danish council forced Christian to sign a long list limiting his powers, 68 points to be exact, even though he didn't have to give up control over the royal treasury in the end. 
some of the most bitter pills to swallow was that the council explicitly denied Christian the right to appoint his own successor. In addition, he had to agree to consult with the council on all important decisions. And if there would be a disagreement between the king and the council, the council would have the power to decide what to do. The document was a humiliating defeat for Christian, but at least he was now officially recognized as king of Denmark. The Norwegians also had a laundry list of demands. They complained about the loss of the Orkney and Shetland Islands, the Hebrides and the Isle of Man, the royal interference in legal proceedings in Norway and in church matters. But Christian could more or less ignore the Norwegians, because he knew they couldn't stop him from becoming king of Norway. In parallel with these negotiations, Christian started to look for a wife. Securing the continuity of the dynasty was one of the most important things he had to do as king and having a strong, experienced and fully grown heir was especially important considering the fact that he'd been robbed of his right to appoint one of his sons as his successor. When entering the marriage market, Christian aimed high, as high as he possibly could. He wanted to marry into the Habsburg family, and had his sights set on one of the granddaughters of the Holy Roman Emperor. In the end, he received signals that he might get a yes if he proposed to one of these girls, Elizabeth, the younger daughter of Philip the Fair and Joanna the Mad of Castile. Both Christian and the Danish council were enthusiastic about the prospect, and wasted no time sending an embassy to the Netherlands to secure the deal. The marriage was obviously politically motivated and not a love match, and that's a bit of a relief because the bride was only 14 years old at the time. As the granddaughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, she was a bit of a catch for Christian, who now married into one of the, if not the, most powerful and prestigious royal families in Europe. The Habsburgs not only controlled the Holy Roman Empire, but also Spain with all its colonies in the New World. The Netherlands, the part of the Habsburg realms where Elizabeth was living, was also increasingly important for Denmark, as a trading partner, as Christian continued to undermine the power and influence of the Hanseatic League in Scandinavia. Another reason the council was enthusiastic was that they hoped this union would break the influence of Duvike and her mother Sigbrit, who still was the king's close confidant. Even though Christian and Elizabeth had never met, they were married in June 1514. In fact, they didn't even meet on their wedding day. They were married separately by proxy, she in the Netherlands and he in Denmark. It was also decided that the young bride was still too young to leave her childhood home, so she'd stay with her aunt Margaret, where she'd grown up for another year due to her tender age. Meanwhile, Christian's relationship with Duvike and his talks with her mother, Sigbrit, continued despite the marriage. The Danish nobles were getting increasingly frustrated by this arrangement. A learned man from a noble family who had studied on the continent went to Christian and tried to persuade the king to end things with Duvike. He said that St. Bridget, the Swedish saint we spoke about at length in episode 52, St. Bridget, had prophesied that the sixth king on the throne would be deposed and forced into exile if he didn't live like a righteous man. The learned nobleman didn't mention Duvike directly, and neither did St. Bridget, obviously, but it was clear as day from the context what he meant. As long as the king kept up his relationship with Duvike and listened to her mother's anti-aristocratic advice, he didn't live like a righteous man, and since he was the sixth king of the Kalmar Union, he risked exile. 
but Christian brushed the advice-slash-warning aside, saying, What St. Bridget dreamt of at night she wrote down during the day, indicating that he shared the scepticism about the validity of the visions of this very political saint. The following spring, a Danish delegation went to the Netherlands to pick up Queen Elizabeth and bring her to Denmark. In anticipation of her arrival and the second wedding, Copenhagen was getting a facelift, and Christian was digging deep in the royal coffers to prepare a splendid feast for the young queen's arrival. But when they arrived in the Netherlands, Elizabeth's aunt, Margaret, refused to let her niece go to Denmark, as long as the king was still carrying on with his mistress in such a scandalous way, that is, showing her and her mother respect in public. The proud Habsburg princess even hinted at dissolving the marriage if Christian didn't do as he was told. True to form, Christian was furious when he found out. He was also humiliated. He had guests arriving in Copenhagen, expecting a splendid wedding feast, and the bride was still in the Netherlands, held hostage by her aunt, who dared to have opinions about who he slept with and socialized with. As the icing on the cake, the Habsburgs announced that they were freezing the payment of the enormous dowry Christian had been promised until the issue with Divike had been settled. The delay was so long, weeks in fact, that some of the wedding guests, especially the more senior ones, like the representatives from the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor, gave up and left Copenhagen again before the bride had even arrived. But in the end, Elizabeth did sail for Copenhagen, more than a month after she had been supposed to arrive. The Archbishop of Norway, Christian's old Chancellor, had managed to get the deal through. But that didn't mean that Christian gave up Duvike or stopped talking to her mother. Nonetheless, there was a wedding, with both the bride and groom present in the same room this time. And the Archbishop of Denmark, who conducted the ceremony, announced that the Pope had granted forgiveness of all sins to the guests who had witnessed the event. But if Christian thought that he'd won, and that everyone had now accepted that Duvike was an inseparable part of his life, he was mistaken. The Habsburgs wouldn't stand for it, and in early 1516 they sent a delegation to Copenhagen to talk to the sixth king of the Kalmar Union and make him break up with his mistress once and for all. It was one of the most experienced diplomats in Habsburg service who arrived in Denmark in March 1516. On April 1st, the delegation met King Christian and presented him with a message from the Holy Roman Emperor himself. The message was so stark that they insisted on reading it verbatim from a document so that there would be no misunderstandings. The emperor expected that Christian not only stop seeing Duvike, but he had to expel her from Denmark as well. If he failed to do so, someone might pull a prank on her. The diplomats didn't specify what kind of a prank that would be. They didn't have to. This was as explicit a death threat as the emperor would care to commit to paper. The Habsburg emissary informed Christian that the emperor expected to receive a written confirmation from the king of Denmark that he would comply and deport Duvike. Now, this was awkward. It wasn't just that the Danish nobility wanted to see the back of Duvike. The Habsburgs, the most powerful family in Europe, wanted to get rid of her as well. He couldn't afford to annoy his powerful in-laws, but at the same time he didn't want to get rid of his mistress. Even though he was fuming, Christian only dismissed the diplomat with an evasive answer. He still had enough self-control not to accost foreign diplomats, at least not 
the ones sent out by the Holy Roman Emperor. But when one of Queen Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting expressed her displeasure about the royal affair, Christian let his fury be known. The hapless lady was banished, and he dismissed all the other ladies-in-waiting as well, for good measure. From now on, he would personally handpick his wife's companions. Christian was doubling down, not relenting. No one was going to tell the King of Denmark what to do, or oppose him without being punished for it. He continued to visit Duvike and her mother Siegbrit just as frequently as before. This went on for another year, but in the summer of 1517, Duvike fell ill. At first, Christian wasn't particularly worried about it. She was only in her late twenties and generally healthy. But the weeks passed and she didn't get better. Only worse. All the doctors the king called for couldn't help and on September 21st, 1517, Duvike died. As sometimes is the case in situations like this, later historians have claimed that Duvike had a positive, soothing effect on the king and that now that she was dead, no one could help him to control his rage and to stop him from acting on his wrath. Maybe that was true, and maybe it's just a cliché. But what is true is that Christian's ruthless streak would blossom in the years to come. The first hint of that came already when the inconsolable king tried to find someone to blame for Divica's death. Soon after her death, rumours started to spread. Everyone knew the relationship had been unpopular in many high and powerful circles, and both Christian and Duvike's mother Siegbrit were convinced that she had been murdered. It was brought to the king's attention that two noblemen had visited Duvike and offered her cherries that she ate. Christian was convinced they had poisoned her, either as a part of an aristocratic conspiracy or at the request of his wife's family. Either way, the two noblemen were arrested and imprisoned in the infamous Blue Tower at Copenhagen Castle. Eventually, one of them was expelled from Copenhagen and forced to stay in western Jutland at an estate he owned there. The second one was put on trial, judged by members of the Council of the Realm. The judges acquitted him, which must have come as an enormous relief for the accused. But not to Christian. He saw the acquittal as a part of the conspiracy. The council wanted Duvike dead, and now they protected her murderer. Christian drew the conclusion that the council of the realm could no longer be trusted. To get the conviction he wanted, the king switched tracks. He now accused the noblemen of stealing from the crown and put together a new court, this time made up of twelve peasants. They convicted the accused for theft, not murder, but he was still executed. The council and the rest of the nobility noted with horror what Christian was capable of doing when he was angered. The king got his revenge, but the price was high, a rift with the Danish nobility. Next time, we'll see what happened when Christian turned to the eternal headache of Danish kings of late, the insubordinate Swedes. Christian was determined to bring them to their knees and to re-establish the Kalmar Union. But after the old steward had died only days before he was expected to be ousted, the Swedes went ahead and elected yet another anti-unionist steward. What will happen when the king and the steward face off? Spoiler, there will be drama. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
this is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamol, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.